Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're continuing our discussion of chapter 2, which is Providence and Prayer. The last time, if you recall, we kind of went over the basic problem of prayer and a relational solution or just one way to reconcile why God would wait for us to pray until he answers us or answers our prayer. And so we went over that, but it also came up a little bit short on praying for others as well as prayers to affect anything other than us, basically. Now to continue the discussion, uh, we're going to go over a section that we pretty much spent five or six chapters talking about in the last book, so we're not going to go over it in depth here, but it does relate to prayer in a kind of different way than it relates to the other subject, as we discussed it. And that section is called Prayer to an All-Controlling God. This is taking on the classical view of God and more specifically like a Calvinist God, where God is the cause of literally everything. He created ex nihilo, and he is the cause of every action that we take. And so you begin the section with a question. It says, does it make sense to pray to God, given that God controls all that happens in the sense that everything happens according to God's will? And that's the basic question of the section. So if you want to introduce that real quick and then talk about it just a little bit. Yeah, there are essentially three different views that are addressed in this. The first is, as you said, the Calvinist view. And Calvin speaks essentially in two different ways that are just conflicting. One is that everything that occurs is in accordance with God's will. It's in accordance with his knowledge, and his knowledge extends as far as his power. And what Calvin is essentially saying is that what God knows is brought about by his power, and so he knows what is going to occur because everything is brought about by God. But he also wants to talk as if though God relates to persons, not as things like stones and, and trees and, and mere rocks, as Calvin says, but he treats us differently. He, he allows us to be our own causes, in essence. But Calvin is, in my view, just adopting two very contradictory ways of speaking because his view requires both that he accept that God controls everything and essentially does everything, and also that humans aren't mere things, they're not mere cogs that they're valuable to God independently of what he does for them. On such a view, when we pray, it's because God causes us to pray. What we say is because we're saying everything in accordance with his will, and it, it becomes just a complicated way of God speaking to himself. It's kind of like a ventriloquist speaking to himself through a dummy or a computer programmer who programs the computer to give him back messages that he wants. It's easy to see on such a view that we have an I-it relationship Here's the most important aspect of this kind of discussion. If God is seeking from us a loving relationship, in other words, he's seeking to inspire us to return his love with our own love so that we freely choose to love him, because love must be freely chosen. It cannot be coerced, can't be caused, can't be brought about by one person to the relationship. Then on the Calvinist view, it seems to me it's impossible for God to get that, because everything he does, it's merely him bringing about what he wills. We have a second view, which is the Thomas view, and actually there are a lot of different Thomas views depending on which Thomas scholar you speak to. But generally, the Thomas believe that God is working through us through proximate causes. That is, God doesn't directly cause us to bring about what we do, but what we do is merely proximately caused by God. So, a proximate cause is, is removed from a direct cause, say several steps. 
I intend to cut the tree down, so I go and get my saw. I pull the, the trigger on the saw, and that's all I really do directly. The gasoline and the engine make the saw chain go around, and the saw chain goes around. Then I press the saw against the tree, and, and the direct action is the chain on the tree. And so the tree is approximately being cut down by my intention to cut down the tree, <laughs> okay? But I'm still causing it more or less directly. The fact that it's brought about by remote causes, that is the fact that it's not me directly causing what is occurring to happen, but the saw is causing it to happen as a secondary cause, it's still the type of causal relationship that is inconsistent with an, an I-thou relationship. It would still be a way of bringing about what one desires through a third party that is completely within the control of the causes that are initiated. We also have a third view, and there are two different views here. In the book, I discuss the position, which I think is an ingenious position, of Thiessen, who I think his, his book, it seems to me, Terence Thiessen, is a brilliant book. And it basically modifies Molinism. Molinism is the view that God comes to the universe this way. He comes before creation. He looks at all of the propositions about all the various worlds that he could create. And then he chooses a possible world, and the world that he will create falls out from the possible world he has chosen to create. So in that possible world, there will be specific propositions that just happen to be true. They're not brought about by God. They're not brought about by us because we don't exist yet. There's a kind of fate. Given the world he chooses to create, that's just the way things are. And so God doesn't bring about our acts. He doesn't cause them, and we don't cause them. <laughs> The problem on such a view we've already discussed is that how could we bring about the truth value of such propositions, and how could it be the case that we're free if there's a set of truths about us before we even exist? But going beyond that, if God is creating in this way, then he chooses what he wants us to say by creating the world that has the true propositions about what we will say at a given time. And so God has pre-chosen the kind of dialogue and relationship that we'll, we will have before he creates the world on Molinism. Now, Terence Thiessen modifies Molinism. Usually all Molinists purport to be libertarians with respect to free will. I don't think that libertarianism is consistent with Molinism, and Thiessen acknowledges that. He just simply concedes that Molinism is not consistent with libertarian free will, so he adopts a determinist or soft determinist notion of free will and argues that God still doesn't bring about the truth value, but that given the world that is created, our actions are causally brought about by something beyond our control, because the causes that bring about what we will do ultimately existed before we existed, and they ultimately and inevitably result in us saying a specific prayer. It's still the case, regardless, that God is choosing a specific world that contains our saying before we even exist, specific words in a prayer asking him specifically, and he's chosen the world that he wants that includes that. So I don't see how it escapes the criticisms that I've given of both Calvinism and Thomism. And it has a number of other criticisms about the nature of possible world semantics, which I won't go into, but the very logical nature of what's going on in this type of Molinism is very problematic. That's a pretty good overview, I think. So let me just finish this section now, if that's okay, with this quote from the book. So in the book, it sums up, it says, The problem with both standard Molinism in general and Calvinistic middle knowledge in particular is that there are no non-contrived circumstances which God does not manipulate to get the responses he wants. God's answers to our prayers in this view are not dependent on our prayers. Rather, our prayers are dependent on God's decreeing the circumstances that dictate how we will pray. And so that pretty much 
sums up the problems of both, you know, all these three or four views of an all-controlling God that are held in the tradition. But that kind of ties into this next section that I'm going to have Jacob go over. It's called manipulative love. So then the question arises, you know, if we don't have an all-controlling God, well, how does he manipulate the world? How does he get things to, to do what he wants them to do? And then when we have the word manipulation, if something's being manipulated, a lot of times we think there's a negative connotation there. No one wants to feel like they're being manipulated, that they're not completely in control. But let's take a closer look at what manipulation entails and uh, how it's not always bad. There's a Calvinist philosopher, Paul Helm, who's challenged uh, a view of what a personal relationship is. He says that a relationship is personal when, A, the relationship is exercised through the perceived structure of belief and desire of each participant, and B, the exercise is non-manipulable in the sense that it does not rely upon physical coercion or psychological compulsion. So what are we to think of this manipulative love then? And if we have personal relationships, why is manipulative love good? Or why is it bad? Or what are we to think? Well, Paul Helm is essentially a Calvinist. And he's arguing that Calvinism, the kind of of all-controlling God that we've spoken of, is still not problematic because the way that God deals with us is in a personal way that it may involve manipulation, but manipulation isn't always bad, at least so he argues. So God is working with us, and he points out that there are various types of manipulative relationships where God is not exercising physical coercion. He's not exercising psychological compulsion. There's still a form of manipulation, but that it ought not be something that's objectionable. So he's suggesting counterexamples to the notion that persons must freely respond to each other in relationships in order to be in loving relationships. So he gives a counterexample. He says there's a person A who will strongly encourage his friend B to meet another third person C, even making it practically impossible for this person B to avoid that third person C, because he thinks that although the person B is reluctant to meet the third person C, he would enjoy or benefit from meeting him. And he says on any realistic appraisal of the situation, A is constraining B. It seems to me that that Helm is just wrong about this. Let's say that I set you up for a blind date. I want you to meet a girl. So I tell you all about her. I may overstate the case. I may tell you how great she is. Let's say I know that you go to a certain bar every day after work. I'm coming up with this because I'm looking for habitual kinds of behavior. And I know that you love to have a drink after work so you can unwind. And so I arrange for her to be there after work, and I'm going to go with you. And I, wow, look, it just, it just so happens that Nancy is here. That's the girl I was telling you about. So I've manipulated the situation so that you just happen to run into Nancy. I've made it inevitable, as a matter of fact. But when he says that this is the kind of situation where one person is, quote, unquote, constraining another person, I'm not. I'm not constraining you to go to the bar because I just figure that you're going to be going there. I have manipulated the circumstances by inviting Nancy to come by. And I'm manipulating you to the extent that I bring Nancy over and make sure that you encounter her. The problem is, is he fails to notice what's really valuable in my relationship. If that were the sum total of the relationship, it would mean virtually nothing. It wouldn't be a personal relationship. Now, how you're going to respond to Nancy, I have to leave freely up to you. And so if we look a little closer, we find out that what's valuable about the relationship isn't manipulated. It isn't constrained. 
I've given you the opportunity to meet Nancy, but now it's totally up to you. So there's no relationship to the extent that I'm just manipulating a meeting. And now I have to leave you free. Let's say, let me change it a little bit. Let's say I have a background in neurophysiology and that I know that if I give you a certain kind of a drug that I can make it so that you have feelings of love for the person that you encounter. In fact, I can enhance it so that you're extremely sexually attracted. And so what I do is just before I bring Nancy over, I slip this potion into your drink and you drink it. And all of a sudden, man, you're in love with the next female you meet. You're going to fall madly in love with. Now I've truly manipulated and constrained you because I'm using a type of, now, is this psychological compulsion or, physio, or, or physical coercion? Well, in a sense, it has to be because the only thing that will work to bring it about is a kind of physiological compulsion where I'm requiring you to now respond in a specific way to the person that I want you to meet. So I'm actually, in, in essence, creating the relationship. This is a constraining relationship. I'm not doing anything more than just using your normal brain chemistry so that you'll have your own thoughts, and through your own thoughts, you'll fall in love. But they're not really your own thoughts. They're the physiologically contrived response. Could you call that love? I submit that on any assessment, that's not truly love. It's just like a dog in heat is what it is, and I don't think we regard dogs in heat as particularly discerning when it comes to falling in love. Could we call this a freely entered relationship? And the answer is, well, of course not. But unless I have this kind of compulsion to create the relationship, what else would work? And so I think that what's being set up is the only way that we can get the type of controlling relationship or we can control the fact that a person will certainly enter into a relationship is if we have either physiologically constraining or psychologically constraining types of forces, and that Helm has just simply missed where the real value in the relationship is set up. Okay. Helm also goes on to suggest that there are, in fact, numerous types of personal and even loving relationships that involve a good deal of manipulation. He brings forth examples of a parent to a child, a student to a teacher, a husband and a wife, or a manufacturer and a customer. And his argument is that family relationships are not chosen, but are nevertheless personal. And that assumes that virtually any relationship between persons and a family is personal. Yeah, remember that I've argued that an interpersonal relationship, an either relationship, is one that results from a free choice. And one that could have been otherwise. We're not constrained to enter into the relationship. And Helm points out, well, you're in all kinds of relationships you don't choose. You're a father and you have children, and therefore you have personal relationships. What we have here, however, is a failure to understand the nature of relationships on Helm's part. The fact that I'm a father doesn't mean I have a loving relationship with my parents. I could bring numerous people who could testify to the fact that even though they have a father, it doesn't mean they love their father. Now, we're in relationships, and we can learn to love people, but at a certain point, it's a matter of choice at a very deep level as to whether or not we're going to continue the relationship and truly respond in love to the love that's been shown to us. Let's make this a little more like the relationship between a human and God that Helm is proposing because he's a Calvinist. I have a son, and I'm going to make sure that he does everything that I want him to do. I contrive it so that every decision he makes, I have already contrived the answer. I never let him choose on his own. So if a parent never lets a child decide any action on his or her own, then the parent would be globally interfering with the child's growth and development. A husband who manipulates his wife 
even if he believes that it's in her best interest, shows that he does not trust her judgment and treats her as an object to do as he sees best rather than as she decides for herself. What's missing in the relationship is both interpersonal respect for the freedom of another and the trust in another person to let them choose what their own life is about. It seems to me that Helm misses the point that genuine relationships must be mutually chosen. The mere fact that a son is in relationship to a father or a daughter's in relationship to a father or a mother does not mean that that's a loving relationship. So I think Helm has once again simply failed to understand human relationships. Okay. On that point, manipulation is not always bad, though. Tyson argues that God is like a loving parent, that although we're being manipulated to a point, we're not being constrained. While we're being manipulated by God, he can always be counted on to manipulate us for our best interest. If you could go a little bit more into that. Well, I just disagree with how you're reading Tyson. I disagree with him that manipulation in interpersonal relationships is a good thing. First of all, manipulation involves a failure to trust because I'm not being upfront with you about the kinds of things that I desire to occur with you. And second, I'm using a type of interference that is not spoken, is not upfront, doesn't respect you as a person, and most important of all, I simply don't trust you to decide for yourself. Now, let me give a modification here. I have been a parent, and I'm presently a grandfather, and we have grandchildren presently, and sometimes when they want to run out into the street on their own, I will run out and pick them up before they can get there. That's because I know better than they do the dangers in the street. So I can coerce them in their own best interest, and the mere fact that I'm doing so does not entail that I'm doing something bad. And it may be that later on in life, they'll appreciate the fact, unlikely, but possible, that they'll appreciate the fact that I saved their lives numerous times. The fact that I'm doing this in their own best interest would suggest that as long as they are not capable of making their own decisions because they lack the cognitive capacity to fully assess the dangers that they're confronting, that it's okay if I make decisions for them in order to protect them. Plus, I'm a parent or a grandparent, so I have a particular duty both in law and morally, to take care of them. But what that means is that God is always going to treat us as a child, never give us the chance to grow up, never trust our own judgment, and that we will forever remain in a relationship where we are cognitively incapable of choosing what our lives are about. That can't be the nature of the relationship between God and human beings. At some point, he has to let us grow up and make our own decisions and choose what our lives are about. So in these very limited situations where a parent has a caretaking responsibility for human beings whose brains aren't fully developed, manipulation, intervention, and even coercion can be justified. What can't be justified is never letting the child choose on his or her own, which is always the case if one views the relationship between God and humans as Helm does, and that is that it is always a deterministic relationship where God's will is always done. Okay. And perhaps I wasn't using the right term in saying that manipulation can be used in a good way other than what you've described. I think kind of what I, I had in mind was more of a persuasion. And you go on in your book to give a, an example of persuading a son to go on a camp. So the story that you give more or less is that there's a son. He's dating a, a girl who is not good for him. She's a bad influence on him, having him be in the wrong place, wrong time, having bad influence on his decision-making capabilities. And so you want to talk with him about this, but you want to get in a one-on-one -on -one situation where you'll be able to have a heart-to-heart -heart talk with him. And so in a roundabout way to go about this, you invite and persuade your son to go on a camping trip so that you'll be able to talk openly. You know, there's a bonding experience there, but 
the real reason for the camping trip is to talk to your son about this relationship with this girl who's having a bad influence on him. Now, it's in a way deceptive in that, you know, you're getting him to go on this camping trip just because you want to talk to him about this girl and you don't tell him that up front. But on the other hand, you're not really constraining him in any way because you're inviting him to come on the camping trip. He likes camping. He is in his power to say no, but you know most likely he's going to say yes. And so this persuasion is a lot more, not more powerful than manipulation, but a lot more loving than what the manipulation would be. What I'm doing is using my son's own desires and what I know he likes the best to take the opportunity to convey to him a message, one that I think is so important that I'm willing to go out of my way to spend time with him. I don't see anything that is immoral, inappropriate, or objectifying about that kind of an approach. I'm not upfront with my son because if I went and said, I want to go camping so I can talk to you about your girlfriend, he would just look at me and say, are you crazy? So I'm going about it in a roundabout way, but I didn't tell him I want to go camping and I'm not doing it only because I want to talk to you about your girlfriend. I'm not lying. <laughs> okay. So what I have, I'm, I'm there with my son. I get the opportunity to see if I can persuade him to see my point of view. Now, maybe I can, maybe I can't, but taking the opportunity to spend the time doing with him what he loves to do. And to convey a message that I think is very important seems to me to be the kind of thing that loving fathers do with their sons and daughters. And so I don't see anything inappropriate about this type of persuasion. In other words, it is manipulative to a certain extent, but it also honors his freedom. He's free to say no to go camping. He's free to not talk with me if we go camping. My suggestions to him are just that. They're not controlling or constraining in any way. And if I get the opportunity, maybe I can persuade him and maybe I can't. But what I'm using is persuasion and not coercion or constraint. And so it seems to me that the type of manipulation that occurs here is that I'm simply not telling him my full agenda. Now, human beings do this all the time in all kinds of relationships. And it seems to me that there are circumstances in which not fully disclosing one's agenda can be appropriate and even loving. In fact, if we know that telling a person our full agenda would just make it so that we never talk anymore, it would be foolish to think that I'm improving my relationships by not disclosing my full agenda. The fact is, we rarely disclose our full agenda. We may have things in mind because persuasion works like that, and I can persuade you to go with me, but I'm not going to work against my own interests. So I don't see anything wrong with that kind of thing. Let's go back and say that I now can implant a device in my son's brain that will cause him to do exactly what I want him to do, which is drop his girlfriend. So I implant the device and cause him to drop his girlfriend. Clearly, in that kind of a situation, it's both psychologically and physiologically constraining. I'm not honoring him. There's no either relationship there. Let's say I can, instead of implanting it in his brain, I'll implant it deeply into the limbic system in his brain so that all I do is cause desires in him. And every time he gets around this girl, I give him an upset stomach, make him nauseous and sick, and give him a certain chemical makeup that causes him to loathe whomever he is with at that point. Well, obviously, if I'm doing that, I'm not honoring his choices. I'm manipulating him in an appropriate way. So is there a relationship between God like that? Well, if God is an all-controlling God, it seems to me that that is the kind of relationship we have that is portrayed in Calvinism and certain forms of Thomism, not as clearly in the Molinism that adopts middle knowledge and libertarian free will. But at the end of the day, it still is not consistent with the type of freedom necessary for a loving relationship. 
So if I'm persuading my son, no problem. But if I'm using some type of uh, surefire, never miss, there is no deviating from the way I want things to be, then it always must involve some form of coercion, psychological compulsion, physical coercion, or something like that in order to get the result. So the only thing that could possibly explain the way that the Thomist or the Calvinist or even the Molinist say that we interact with God is for God to pre-choose before we're involved and or predetermine before we're involved the outcome, in which case it ends up again being in prayer, simply a complicated way of God speaking to himself. And there is no possibility for an interpersonal loving I-thou relationship between persons on such a relationship. All right. Well, with that, we'll go ahead and move on to the next section here about divine openness and petitionary prayer. So we've kind of discussed this view peripherally in the last book and you know, a little bit directly, but first we need to introduce the school of thought known as open theism. And rather than me waste time, go ahead and kind of give us an overview of what open theism is and where it can be found. Okay, well, I'll, I'll take first the kind of more traditional open theism, because what I've proposed in my book is a form of Mormon open theism. But open theists are generally more or less evangelicals who believe that God does not have absolute foreknowledge because it's inconsistent with free will, and that God has the power, he could control everything if he decided to, but has chosen to limit the exercise of his power in order to leave room for human freedom. So that's open theism. And the question is, does open theism leave room for a genuine I-thou relationship, and does it leave room for genuinely loving relationships? Right, great. And then you kind of say that it does to an extent. And so let me just read a couple quotes and you can explain what you mean by that. First quote here is, The openness model provides a sense in which God can genuinely dialogue and we can also convince God to relent and revoke a word that he has spoken. Or I guess he can, he can relent and revoke a word that he has spoken. Prayers thus can make a genuine difference in relation to God. And so why is that possible on open theism? Because our responses are not the result of what God wills, God doesn't bring about our responses. He leaves us free to choose for ourselves. And so we have an open dialogue in which the responses aren't already known, they're not already decided, and God's not bringing them about. It's the kind of dialogue that we have with people because we're limited in knowledge. And if we don't control what they're saying, I mean, I could put a gun to your head and pretty well get you to say anything you want, probably, but. If I truly want to know what you think, and if I truly want a loving response, I can't coerce that. I've got to leave it up to you whether you'll have that kind of a relationship with me. If God has foreknowledge and knows everything I'm going to say before I say it, first, I'm not free when I say it. I'm just doing what was already in the cards before I ever said anything. In fact, what I was going to say was determined long before I got to it, either by the truth of the propositions about what I would do in the future or by some causal mechanism that brings it about that I will say it. But if I'm truly free and God does not have foreknowledge, then it leaves room for me to choose my own responses in dialogue. So what I want in the dialogue, how I choose to go about the dialogue, how the dialogue progresses is in part up to me in my creative interaction. So what I'm saying is in the moment of creation, each moment is a moment of creation. And I act as an artist creating my speech, creating my relationship, and creating myself as we interrelate with one another as we dialogue. Now, talking about genuine dialogue, the kind that is an I-thou dialogue, where I'm invested, I listen, I care, and what you say impacts me. 
and I respond from my whole being. So genuine dialogue isn't the kind of dialogue when you're reading the newspaper and your wife's talking to you and you're not listening. And every now and then you go, mm-hmm, yeah, I think so. That's not genuine dialogue. <laughs> genuine dialogue involves the whole person and is totally invested. And so if we're in relationship with God, if we, people run into these kinds of examples all the time and we could give millions of them, but let's just say that you've just learned that you've got a child who has cancer and you want your child to heal. And so you go to God in earnest prayer because he's the only one who ultimately can make that decision. Let's say that the cancer has progressed to a point that by human means, it's really not curable. Now, there have been people who have had miracles and have gone into remission, and there are strange stories. But you're going to do everything you can. You're going to beg God. You won't be able to even help yourself. Even if you're an atheist, you're going to be strongly tempted to reach out and say, you know, if you're there, please listen to me. Because it's these kind of earnest, wholehearted, when everything is on the line kinds of prayers where we totally invest ourselves. And, you know, if we know God and have faith, then we can enter into a dialogue with God. But if we don't have that kind of faith, we're still going to beg. We're going to do everything we can. We may even try to manipulate God the best that we can. The great thing is God's non-manipulable. But at the bottom line, at the end of the day, we're going to pour out everything we have to God begging and, and seeing whether or not we can persuade him to adopt our point of view on what is best for the world. Okay. We kind of touched on this in the last one, but is that ever really a wise thing to do? Or I don't know, I guess that's up for debate, but I see generally there's three levels of prayers. One is, you know, these kind of, well, maybe not this specifically, but, you know, the kind of desperation prayers, let's say you got in a car accident and you fell into the river and you're sinking. And this desperation, your mind is like, please, please help me. And so you're there. And then there's another kind where you are basically asking God for something more general in your life, I guess, to kind of um, help you acquire something that you want. I don't know, this one's kind of vague, but anyway. And then, and then the third one is you're basically wanting your will to be aligned with God's will, meaning you just kind of sacrifice all, you're like, you know what, I have a general idea, but you know best, and so if you could just guide me, I will try to be as open as I can to your promptings, and then we can do this together. And so, kind of three levels of prayer. Do you think it's more of an immature relationship to try to change the will of God like that, even though I know we cite prophets doing it, but I don't know. No, I don't think it's, I don't think it's immature. I think it's spiritual immature to address God in faith and to fully expect that he'll honor your request. And God answers prayers only in three ways. Okay, I believe this. I heard this somewhere else. It's not original with me. He uh, answers, yes, not yet, and I have a better plan for you. Okay, So when God is saying, I have a better plan for you, it may be difficult for us to trust God. So in the end, if God's answer is, you know, I've got a different way, it's up to us to trust that God has a better way. Sometimes the answers to our prayers don't come about immediately. Because we have to grow, and it's only by confronting challenges that we grow. And sometimes we see miraculous responses right on the spot. 
but we can give all kinds of examples. I mean, we had one in our own family. You remember when we were coming through the back way to come around from the Fremont National Park to come over Johnson's Reservoir and go down into Fish Lake. And it was early in spring. I didn't expect there to be snow. We're driving along. And we essentially got stuck in the snow in the van in a, in a sub-zero degree night. And we were all in danger of being frozen. And so we get out and try to push the van and everything we do is not working. And so you guys know the story. You can finish it. Right. Well, I was, we were very little kids at this time. I think this might have even been sometime before I was eight. I don't remember exactly the age, but I was a little kid. And you came in and you're like, well... Basically, you didn't say this, but it conveyed, basically, we're screwed. You better say a prayer. <laughs> and I said, I already did. And then right when I, a couple minutes after that, some headlights came and some, and this was like nighttime, so it's dark out. So generally this wouldn't happen. Some snowmobilers happened to be flying around on their snowmobiles. Very drunk snowmobilers, mind you, but they were there. And we were out in the middle of nowhere, and the likelihood they would be there was pretty remote. I remember it a bit differently. I asked you to say the prayer, and you said a prayer. And you said amen, and I looked up and looked in the rearview mirror, and I saw two lights. I mean, immediately. And I was stunned. And I said, look behind us. Jacob, do you remember what you said? I do not. You said, oh, wow. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was like... We just said this prayer, and out of nowhere, we get these two snowmobilers. Now, they were completely soused and drunk. They shouldn't have been out there. It was, remember, it was 2 in the morning, and we were in the middle of nowhere up on top of a mountain, and to have these two snowmobilers just show up within seconds after finishing the prayer seemed pretty convincing to me. Now, it's easy to say, well, they were just out, and it was just a coincidence, but I've never believed that. Well, they obviously had to be on their way before the prayer, otherwise it couldn't have happened, but... Well, maybe God saw that I was stupid and heading in that direction. <laughs> maybe they were drunk angels. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I always viewed it. Now, do I know for sure that, that they were there in response to the prayer? I don't know. But the fact that they showed up when they did seemed like a lot more than a coincidence to me. And so would I pray for God to do that? Yeah, when everything else is not going to work, who else would you turn to? It's the most natural thing on earth. How else would you do it? Where else would you go? It's almost built into us as human beings. It's like, in inevitably, in those kinds of situations, I'm going to be driven to pray. I'm going to be driven to talk with God. And as I said, I've, I mean, I had a friend who was an atheist, not anymore an atheist, but at the time was an atheist. and He was at the lowest in his life, and he said a prayer, God, if you're there, show me the way. And then miracles started happening for him. So, yeah, do I believe that it makes sense to ask God for things? Absolutely. Philosophically, doesn't make sense. Yes, if God doesn't know the future, then God can be persuaded. Now, maybe God has decided beforehand that certain things have to happen and certain growth has to happen. Otherwise, by answering my prayer, it's not going to be in my best interest. Again, we can go back to the relational model for this. God may decide that, you know, whatever the reasons are for cancer or whatever other physical challenges we have, that he's going to wait to answer that prayer, or maybe he'll answer it right off. So when I was in law school, I was at the U of U, and my assignment was to be at the U of U Med Center. And what we would do is we would go and hold meetings, and then afterward we would go get people in their beds and in their wheelchairs and bring them down to a sacrament meeting, after which we would go up to the rooms and take the sacrament to people and give blessings. On this particular Sunday, we got there, and this was before any of the other meetings. 
we had a, a request that we go give a blessing. So it was about seven o'clock in the morning. I went up. There was a girl there who had leukemia. Who was in the last stages of leukemia. She was dying, and her parents asked for a blessing. They were just about to take her into the operating room because she had obstructions, and they were going to work to remove them so that the pain could be reduced. So I gave her this blessing. We went down. We held our meetings. We held sacrament meeting, and then we were up there taking the sacrament around and, and giving blessings to people. And I noticed that she was still in her room, which was strange because they were prepping her that that time to go into the operating room. So I went and spoke with her mother, who was there. I said, I thought she was going into the operating room. And she says, yeah, I, she was. But immediately after your prayer, the pain stopped. <laughs> and I came back about a week later and she wasn't in her room. She'd been in her room for three months because she was dying. And I figured maybe they'd taken her to hospice. And so I asked the head nurse what had happened. We all knew this girl very well. And she said, well, she is in complete remission. The doctors couldn't find any sign of the leukemia in her last test. And so we sent her home. Now, I followed up a bit and got more knowledge. Immediately after the prayer, the leukemia was just gone. Sometimes God says yes in miraculous ways that are so breathtaking that we can't even fathom what's going on. Science has no explanation. But it's not the fact that science has no explanation that makes it a miracle. What makes it a miracle is that God said yes to something that otherwise would absolutely never occur. So did I change what would have happened by them asking for a blessing? And my asking God and giving her a blessing, did we change the history of the world? Well, I didn't, but I gave God an opportunity to do so in some sense. So say what you will about asking God to do things. God does things sometimes. And that's the faith of the Latter-day Saints. It's a matter of saying, okay, what kind of a view of God makes sense of the kind of relationship that Jesus taught us to have with God? That is to ask him in faith as if though we were little children believing that we'll be answered. No matter what you want to say, that is the core of the Christian faith, this kind of on our knees relationship building with God and being inspired so that we can bless each other's lives. That seems to me, if you want to have a square one to begin from, that's square one. We can actually come back to that because I have some things I want to discuss about that type of idea. But first, let's kind of get into this Mormonism view on the problem of prayer. So you start out, and we just discussed the open view, and you say, because Mormonism is above all a relational theology, it has all the same resources to explain how persons enter into genuine dialogue and genuine relationships with God through prayer as the open view of God. So everything we just discussed, that's also available to Mormonism because we also believe that, for the most part, we are free. And I know some people believe that God has foreknowledge, but as per our discussion at least, God doesn't necessarily have infallible foreknowledge, and he, that's necessary so that we can have freedom. So we have all the same options that we just discussed. So we go back to kind of an argument from Eleanor Stump, and she had mentioned, remember, that prayer can act as a buffer to the relationship between the world and God and to a relationship that would otherwise overwhelm us and spoil us. And so he doesn't want to spoil us, so he waits until we ask, and then he gives us what we need. In the Mormon view, prayer also becomes the basis for developing a more intimate and profound relationship with God of pure love. And that's not available to any other view of God. Then you just give a quick example here. In the Book of Mormon and the Book of Ether, there's the brother of Jared, or Mahan Roy Moriankumer. He's just called the brother of Jared. Anyway, if you recall the story, basically his people need to cross uh, like 
I don't know if it's an ocean, a body of water, and he is inspired, and through some inspiration, revelation, they are able to build, like, what are called barges, but they're basically, like, little wicker submarines, basically, made out of weaving that's very tight. Anyway, it's pitch dark in there, and there's no way to light him, and so he goes and prays, and he's like, hey, it's dark in there, and we need a way to light the ship. And so he's dwelling on it, but instead of coming to him and being like, hey, brother Jared, I'm going to light your ship before you even think about it, he waited until the brother of Jared came up with an idea, and the brother of Jared was like, hey, you know what? I don't know if this is in the scriptures, but in the animated video, he's looking at hot coals as they come out of the fire, and they glow red for a second before they go dark. He's like, hey, you know what? Rocks. They can glow if they're given light, and so he takes some stones before the Lord, and he prays, and the Lord comes out, and he's already tells him, he's like, hey, I have a great idea for lighting the barge. Hey, look, I'm trying to proactively participate in this. If you can touch these or light them, then I know that they can light the barge. And so he does so, but he waited for the brother of Jared to make the first step, if you will. How does that relate to this discussion, I guess? Well, in several ways. First, the brother of Jared became creative in his relationship with God, but look at the kind of trust. I mean, he's almost like a kid. It's like, well, rocks can glow. So he takes these clear stones and puts them in front of God and says, okay, if you touch these, they'll glow and we'll have light. So he sees the finger of God. Remember that this prayer where he's asking God to intervene then becomes the basis for a revelation to the brother of Jared of Jesus's corporeal nature. That is, he sees that he has the form of a human being and that he's going to take upon himself a body. And so what he learns through this, and in fact, is becomes very clear in the text, is I'm going to be like you so that you can be like me. And so this becomes a profound revelation of the type of peer relationship that God is seeking. And so not only does the prayer itself demonstrate the kind of peer relationship and God honoring the peer relationship, but then it becomes the teaching moment for the nature of that peer relationship where God seeks to make us in his own image so that we can be everything that he is. It's that prayer becomes the means of this peer relationship in dialogue. And so in Mormonism, at least, God is seeking to have us learn through our experiences how to be godlike. And not merely godlike, but in fact, gods. This is an amazing type of an assertion, but that's one of the primary goals of prayer is to give us the opportunity to grow through our experience in relationship with God to be peers with God. He's not satisfied with subjects. He doesn't want slaves. God doesn't want the kind of relationship that I have with my dog. He wants the kind of relationship between two peers, between a father and a son. And as every father wants his son to grow to be the kind of person that he can relate to as a peer, where they're no longer divided so much by age. And now they can share fully their thoughts and, and their lives together so that they can come see eye to eye. So this kind of uh, paracope in the Book of Ether becomes uh, an amazing story about the power of prayer. All right. Now I want to return to kind of what you spoke about before, because this relates to this peer relationship. This is kind of what I was trying to get at before. So here's been my problem of prayer, like I mentioned before. Like, prayer has kind of been an interesting thing for me. So changing the mind of God, I, I don't know. Like, I, I guess for me, I, I don't know if I'm totally sold on that, because basically prayer may or may not. And so I have a hard time finding the use in trying to thrust our will upon God rather than trying to align our will with God's will. Because let's say you prayed for your friend that had leukemia, and then God decided that, no, this wasn't going to happen right now. 
all you can do is be like, oh, okay, well, I guess that the answer was I have a better plan or just no. And that's for me to deal with. It doesn't matter how hard I plead it. If it's not in God's plan to answer the prayer a certain way, then he's not going to do it. And so I kind of make the joke sometimes. It's like, you know, when you're praying like, hey, I really want this. Can you make this happen for me? But I know you're pretty much going to do whatever you want anyway. So why don't you just go ahead and do what you want? But that's in a negative way. But in the positive way that I've, at least in my own mind, tried to spin that is like, well, what if I could align my will with that of God? And this is where an actual relationship could come in, I guess, a peer relationship. Because if we can both want the same things, then I stop wanting to have my own will exercised so vehemently. I, I want, I guess, my will too, to a point, but mostly I want God's vision of the world to be able to be realized through me. And me, rather than me fighting against it, I'm at one with it. Is that contrary to your view, or is it just, did I not explain it good before? No, I mean, ultimately, um, the kind of relationship that I would describe as the divine relationship is where there is complete agreement, where their wills are in complete alignment with one another. And so there's not this back and forth about, you know, I'd, I'd rather have this, so I disagree with you. You know, it's like when Jesus was praying to his father, let this cup pass from me, that's what I really want, but not as I will, but as thou will have done. And so this is a very spiritually mature kind of prayer. I mean, Jesus was actually looking for a way, I believe, to avoid the impending sense of disaster that he had. But he was willing to submit to whatever God's plan was. Ultimately, we're not in control. And the relationship that we have with God presently isn't so much a peer relationship where we can direct God around his heavens. It's a relationship of a father to a very young child, or maybe between a human being and an ant or maybe between a super scientist and an amoeba. So, you know, whatever the distance is between us and God, and, and the distance is vast, there comes a point where we, I think, are constrained to acknowledge that there's a lot we don't know. It makes sense to listen to God because of his wisdom. Does that mean we don't ask? And the answer is no. A part of what God has purpose for us is to learn to trust him and to grow in relationship and to exercise our power of creation. And so God allows us to do all of these things by allowing his will to be influenced when we give him permission by praying, or when we do not relent and God says, okay, why don't you learn what's going to occur when you do it your way instead of my way? And we have numerous instances of that in, that we've already discussed, like when the 116 pages were lost. Sometimes if God gives you your way, it's like, whoa, that was really instructive. I don't want to do that again. So I'm going to align my will with God's will this time and just trust him. But there's also the time when we assert our power, as I said, in relationship with God, as the prophets do in relationship with God, when they become essentially saviors and mediators between others and God, and essentially stand up to God and say, no, this is the way. Let me argue with you. Let me reason with you as one man reasons with another, as God says in Isaiah. Let's reason together. And they become very powerful mediators who change the history of the world because they're willing to stand in relationship with God and to say, no, that's not my vision for this world. This is my vision for this world. And so God may honor our vision. In fact, it may come to a point in the open view of God where God doesn't have foreknowledge where new things become possible because the growth that he didn't know was going to happen has occurred. And now what he can accomplish through us 
has increased. And there are new possibilities that are opened. And when we pray, we may be praying to be inspired by God, not merely to say, oh, well, do what you're going to do anyway. It's like, inspire me so that I can come up with a way to accomplish this. Inspire me. Or it may be, you know, I'm not satisfied with the way the world is. I'm taking a stand. And I'm, I'm not demanding a, a world of this nature. But I am taking a stand for this world, and I will be the means to bring it about. So that whatever, come hell or high water, I will not rest until this world exists. And so the fact is, is that all of these kinds of relationships are portrayed in Scripture. And they're all relationships of prayer. They're all proper relationships. At times, it doesn't make sense when we're completely befuddled. I go to God often, just fall on my knees and don't say a word. I just listen or ask questions and listen for the answers. Or I go with a problem and wait for a solution to unfold in some way. And sometimes it unfolds immediately and I know exactly what to do. And sometimes it's only later that I see, oh, I see how this is to work out. Or I see you had a better plan for me than I was able to come up with for myself. (laughs) All of these things happen. But I think the difference between the person of faith and the person who lacks faith is that the person with faith will see God's hand in all things. We will see the subtle maneuvering of God to respond to our inquisition and our inquiry and our demand and our pleading and and our cries and our heartfelt sobs and, you know, everything that makes us human. And so there's not just one right way of prayer. I mean, you say there are all these kinds of prayers. There are all these kinds of prayers. And sometimes it's just a matter of where we are, the energy that we have at that particular moment. And sometimes it's a matter of being open to be inspired how to pray. Sometimes we need to go. I sometimes fall to my knees and say, teach me how to pray today. Teach me while we'll work today in our relationship. And so it's not that, oh, there's one proper way of praying and everything else is wrong. That's not how it works. Life is a dynamic creation full of possibilities. And it behooves us to have an open heart to be open to the possibilities as we interact with God. So next, as we talked about in the relational solution and we talked one of the problems with that is it, its relation to intercessory prayer or prayer for others. In the book, you talk about a guy named Vincent Brumer, who we talked about in the first half of this, who's the person from Utrecht University. Anyway, he says that I offer myself to God through prayer for my friend to be the means through which he may be healed. Well, that's not, you said that, but then he says, intercession is cooperation with that transcendent will of God, which is nonetheless imminently at work in and through men's relationships to one another, and thereby involves both God and the petitioner as the partners in realizing what is being asked for. So Brummer notes that there are two immediate consequences for such a rationale for intercessory prayer. Um, And just, I guess, to point that out, he's saying that it's a cooperation, and he uses the relationships of man as a way to answer prayer. He says, first... This view excludes using petitionary prayer as a means of evading our duties and getting God to fulfill them in our place. And so this is a very timely notion here. You know, there's been hurricanes and earthquakes and all sorts of things. And so on Facebook, it's a very popular thing that says, you know, thoughts and prayers with Mexico, thoughts and prayers with Texas, thoughts and prayers with these people. And there's kind of a funny meme where I saw a guy sitting at a computer and his hands hovering above two buttons and one says 
thoughts and prayers really big and he's about to press that but then the other button says do something about it and so there's kind of this idea that at least for some people that if you say your thoughts and prayers then you've done your part and you're excused from anything else but i like brummer's idea here that it does not excuse us from doing our duties you know and so if you're praying for example you give this example let's say you have a, a neighbor and he's very lonely and you can see that he's very sad and so you say a prayer and you're like oh you know please help him not to be lonely well how hypocritical is that because the fact that he's lonely can be relieved by you going and being a friend to this person in fact in this last conference it's been mentioned that god does at times act miraculously out of the ordinary in ways that we can't explain but for the most part the way that god acts is through other human beings we are generally the best way for God to answer the prayers of others. We answer their prayers. We are literally God's hand, or not literally, but we are metaphorically God's hands on earth. I don't know. I just thought that was a very timely idea. I agree. And the problem with the meme is that it makes prayer mutually exclusive from doing something. It may be that the reason we pray is to be inspired to know what to do. It may be that the reason that we pray is that our corporate prayer you know, joining with others will become very powerful to change the way that things are. And, you know, but as you say, being mindful when we pray of what we're asking for, once we've envisioned what we would like the world to be, it then becomes up to us to be that change in the world. Exactly. And that's great. I don't know. And that was kind of, I mentioned Bruce Almighty last time. I know that's just like a parody of things, but that was kind of the moral of the story of, hey, be the answer to someone's prayer, you know. And that kind of stuck with me. Anyway, and like you just mentioned, his second point, just so that we say it was, like you said, corporate prayer, group prayer, you know how we pray and we say, hey, Heavenly Father, help this person. And so that may be also more effective because more individuals are being open to being able to be inspired by God to fulfill the requests of other people's prayers. And so the more people that are open to it, the better. Well, yeah, and, and I'm going to bring corporate prayer into a bit different of a perspective, especially in light of the prayer circle in the temple, that letter to saints engage in, which is the true order of prayer. Um, let's take a process view of God's power and the way he influences the world. So in a process view, my prayers add an impetus toward the realization of what I'm asking for to the world. It's a small impetus, but depending on my faith, it may be a more powerful impetus. But if I have others join with me as a corporate request and prayer, then at least in a process view, the, the scope of the influence in the world is much greater. And so God's power to bring about what is being asked becomes much greater. And so at least on that point of view, the very fact that I'm praying adds to God's power to bring it about. And the fact that a lot of us are praying adds to God's power to bring it about. Now, because I'm kind of a modified process theologian, I actually believe that prayer increases God's power to achieve his purposes. My cooperation with God not only gives him permission to intervene in my life as I ask him to do, my openness increases God's power to intervene not only in my own life, but if I'm praying for others, the scope of the power being directed toward that person has actually increased the light the energy, the knowledge and power that are influencing that person and his physical reality can be increased. Now, this is a complete rationale for intercessory or petitionary prayer. 
if my prayer actually adds to God's power to bring about the result that I'm asking for, then it makes imminent sense for me to pray and join my power, however puny, with God's power to realize the result, to actually bring about a direct influence on the microcosms in the world, to bring about the result that we're seeking through persuasion. So the way I view the world, we are all influenced by each other. There's this mental intelligence, if you will, that acts on everything, and there's an intelligence in everything. And when we pray, we increase the power of nature, we increase the power of human beings, we increase the power of God to realize what we're praying for. I contend that I've just given a fully rational reason for asking God in prayer to do things. And so petitionary prayer now makes perfectly good sense. Do you acknowledge, Corey, that the rationale I gave is a perfect rational reason to pray and ask? Well, it will depend on how you answer some of these next parts, just because I have to admit it is still slightly confusing to me because I guess let me repeat back to you what I'm understanding that you just said. So you're saying that we also have influential or persuasive power on the elements or whatever the basic form of intelligence that forms everything in the universe. And therefore, if we join in with God's power in, let's say, 10,000 people are praying for the same thing, because of that, it increases the persuasive influence on these elements 10,000-fold, or not, just 10,000 micro people units or whatever you want to call it, in addition to God's power, and somehow that's making it more likely to come about than if these people weren't praying for this joint thing? In process terms, we all have an influence on each other, but we're adding our influence to God's initial aim to persuade the world to reflect God's will for the world. So by asking, we're actually increasing God's power in the world to bring it about because the power of his initial aim is increased and the influence that we have on each other acts upon us and upon them. Everything is interrelated, and that's a part of the metaphysic that I have elucidated. So when we pray, we actually increase the power to realize what we're praying for all around. And therefore, it makes perfectly good sense to ask, because what we're doing is increasing the power to realize what we're asking for. So I guess I get that, but I'm, like I said, it kind of goes into this next part. So, you know, we've talked about us bringing about God's will, and we can be inspired. It's like, you know, President Monson many times has given lots of stories where it's like, I was sitting on a bus, and then I felt inspired to get off the bus and go into a hospital. And I did, and there was a dying widow there, and I happened to be with her for her last moments. What a beautiful thing. And so, you know, that's being an instrument in God's hands, if you're truly listening. And that's all well and good. But, and this is a quote from the book, says, but what if I pray, not that my friend won't be lonely, but that he will be healed from an incurable cancer or an addiction? What can I do to answer that prayer? Indeed, it seems that a part of the reason I have not simply taken care of the problem myself is that I am incapable of doing so. Now, perhaps prayer will be the means of allowing God to inspire me to raise money for research or additional medical assistance to address the problem, but if the cancer is so far progressed or the addiction so far ingrained that all human resources together cannot do anything more, do we simply refrain from praying at that point? And I thought, that's a great question, and that's where a lot of people's problems with prayer come in. It's like, well, I'm not asking for inspiration on what to do. It's up to God 100%, because I can't control that. Yeah, and so, given the rationale that I've just given, 
it makes sense to pray in order that God may be empowered and the nature may be empowered to actually respond to the prayer to heal. Now, maybe that won't be sufficient, but maybe we've increased the power, you know, whatever it is that's acting on those cancer cells enough that the cancer cells will begin to recede. Now, just a side note, doesn't make sense of stopping leukemia in its tracks in just a moment if you're a process thinker, because that usually takes time. But maybe everything aligns in just one moment because the prayer is so powerful that it just kicks the snot out of the cancer. That takes a lot of faith. Maybe some people have that kind of faith, but that would be one rationale for praying. I'm pulling on process thought to bring it into the Mormon metaphysic that I've developed to show how this gives us additional resources to make sense of prayer. The second would be, okay, it may be that there are people in our lives for the purpose, they've consented, and we talk about two different types of consent, but they've consented at a certain level to be the means through which we can learn lessons that otherwise we would never have the opportunity to learn. The reason for making this recognition is that they have a purpose in this life that they have chosen to be a means. It's not that God is using them as a means to answer my prayer. They have chosen as their end, their purpose, to be that means. And so I just want to point out the reason for introducing it is in part to not violate Kant's second categorical imperative. Now, here's the resource that Mormonism brings to bear. We believe that we existed before this life as conscious entities. And uh, in fact, it's a part of our theology that we could agree to undergo certain types of experience. Now, it may be, this isn't a definite part of the theology, but I often hear Mormons talk this way, that we had more than sufficient time to make agreements with one another that we would be willing to be used as a means toward the end of allowing a person to learn a lesson. Now, there are two types of use of means in God's providential plan, and probably three, actually. It may be that there's just this general plan in which we say, you know, however you want to use me, I'm willing to be used, okay? And so I give my general consent. Whatever appears in mortality, I'm willing to undergo and I love everybody there so much. I'm willing to be the means. I don't have to have a full life. I've progressed far enough. I don't have to get anything else out of life other than to be able to be a means to express my love for them so that they can learn lessons that they need so that they can progress. It would take a certain kind of individual, it seems to me, to give that kind of general consent. It would have to be somebody who themselves doesn't require certain types of experiences in order to grow and that they themselves couldn't benefit from. Now, there could also be a more specific type of consent, and that is, let's say we're together before the pre-mortal life, and you're saying, you know, I'd really like to learn what it's like to love somebody that is so difficult to love that it's just darn near impossible. And so I say, you know what, I'm willing to go down and be your father, and I'm willing, if this is, you know, how it works, to be a drug addict or to be an alcoholic or to be abusive so that it's dang near impossible for you to love me. And I'll give you the opportunity to choose whether to love me or not, even under those circumstances. I consent to be the means by which you learn that. Now, obviously, there have to be free choices that I'll make when I'm there, so it's not guaranteed that this type of a scenario would eventuate. But in the instance that it does eventuate, I've given permission to God to not intervene to make sure that I don't become an addict, okay? I've given him permission to use me as a means to teach you the lesson that we agreed that you would learn or would like to have a chance at least to learn if you come to earth. 
So all of these are open possibilities in Mormonism, whether it's general consent, whether it's specific consent. We give our consent to be the means by which other people can learn lessons, and therefore what we do is we say, I'll be the means by which you learn by responding to the prayer, that if you ask in prayer, I will be willing to be the means that you learn that answers can be given to prayer, and that prayer is powerful, and that it will effectuate a relationship between you and God. And I'm willing to be that means. That seems to be to be an additional rationale that could be true within the Mormon theological tradition as a rationale for prayer. And I will let you have the final word on this. I wrote some of my thoughts down on this, and again, I don't want to dive too deep into this because this is basically the subject of your whole fourth book, but I just would like to give my reason why I don't see the more specific as really making sense. I just wrote something, and then again, you'll have the last word. So here is what I wrote. I said, something so specific regarding the consent cannot really make sense. It's like if you said, hey, if God is, you know, before life, you're like, hey, in fifth grade, you're going to get hit by a car, and that's going to break your arm. And then a doctor will fail to recognize that there is a problem, and you will get an infection. Another doctor will misdiagnose that until there is a debilitating damage done, and you are paralyzed below your waist because of an infection. And that will give John here, come over here, John, whose dad will happen to choose a career as a dentist that will get him a job in the same city, and he'll happen to live next door to you, and then you'll become friends, maybe, and then when this accident happens to you, it'll give him the chance to pray for you, which will strengthen his relationship with me. Sound good? As for foreknowledge seems to be required in this instant, because specific consent seems to require knowledge of the outcome of causal chains of events. And again, yes, it is possible, but there are such an innumerable number of possible events that would lead to this, or there's so many possible events of it not happening, that it seems it would be a waste of time trying to consent to something so specific because you would have to reason out an infinite number of scenarios to consent to. Or, and this is the last thing I want to say, this is another option is kind of the more general consent is like, God again, hey everyone, the plan is to go down to earth and you will be subject to all kinds of potential suffering. You could get sickness, injuries, there could be freak accidents and consequences that you'll suffer because of other people's decisions. And you will not be able to fully comprehend the causal chain of your choices and actions. And sometimes something that you think is a good idea unwittingly will cause harm to others. But the bottom line is, we can all learn from each other. And this is what I kind of take as the emphasis of what God is telling Joseph Smith when he's in Liberty Jail. He says, no matter what circumstances you are in, or what happens to you, you can learn and grow from it. You can answer pain, misery, suffering with love and empathy and learn, well, something, whatever you choose, but mostly love. So what do you say? Do you consent to providing each other with the learning opportunities as they also provide them for you? So that's the general consent versus kind of a more specific consent. And again, I obviously favor a more general consent because I think a specific consent is far too reliant on causal chains to really be helpful. First of all, I've argued and I believe that the kind of will assertions that you're making about the future are neither true nor false. The law of the excluded middle does not apply to such statements, so I would never use those kind of statements about the future. Instead, I would use might or may statements. It may be that I will be in this kind of a circumstance, and if I am in this kind of a circumstance, then if you're in that kind of a circumstance, 
that I give God permission to use me as a means to teach you any specific lesson or the specific lesson that we discussed. So it won't be so specific as, look, you will be in the fifth grade and this will occur. It may be the case that I'm going to be in this kind of a circumstance, and if that circumstance arises, would you be willing to teach me this lesson? So even the more specific type of consent, we give very specific narrow types of consent, but it doesn't matter that those may not occur because of free will, and and God doesn't have foreknowledge to assure that those things will occur, and he doesn't bring them about. Now, it may be that God intervenes in a way to make sure that if we've agreed to learn certain kinds of lessons, that circumstances arise for us that give us that opportunity. And so God can intervene from time to time and bring it about that we get the same opportunity over and over again. Take the circumstance of a person, and and maybe the world is set up naturally this way. Let me explain. I have a friend who has been divorced five times. All five times he's divorced because he marries the same kind of a person, and he responds the same kind of a way to the same kind of a person that leads to the divorce. There's a lesson here that he's not learning. If he would marry a different kind of person, there may be a different outcome. So the lesson for him to learn to be in a relationship is being delivered over and over and over again. He's just not learning the lesson. So it may be that, you know, just using this analogy, it may be that God sees to it that the kinds of circumstances that give us the opportunity to learn a lesson will reoccur to us over and over and over again. Let's say that I have a friend who is in need, and he makes sure that by some way I become aware that this person needs help, and then we see whether I respond or not. If I don't respond, the opportunity is going to come around again, and then we get to see whether I'm learning this lesson of love or whether I'm not. And so the notion that God doesn't have foreknowledge and that we're free doesn't mean that God can't intervene or that God can't intervene to bring about circumstances such that we would have the opportunity to learn from those circumstances. Indeed, it may be that the very kinds of natural disasters that happen and the natural evils that occur through diseases or other types of physiological problems that we have are a part of the constructive learning process that God would like to give us the opportunity to go through. So all of these may have a pedagogical purpose. Now I say may, because it may be that it's a mix of this kind of more specific type of uh, consent mixed with a more general type of consent as well. I mean, none of this is dictated. But if we haven't consented, and here's the other point, if we haven't consented to certain kinds of evils, it may be that God intervenes in ways that are unknown to us to ensure that we don't have those kinds of challenges in our lives. Let me give a couple of examples. Certainly, God knows that by the time we're being born, the kind of family that we're being born into, he knows, for instance, if there's a father in the family who's an alcoholic and has sexually molested his other children, that it's highly likely he's going to continue to be an alcoholic and the likelihood that you're going to be sexually molested is much higher than in other homes. So it seems to me there would have to be a certain kind of consent to enter that kind of a home in order to learn the kind of lessons that arise for people who live in those kind of homes. It may be that you have agreed to have spina bifida. I mean, I could give you any long list of diseases the kids are born with, but it seems to me that when people are born with those kinds of problems, that there must be some form of a consent that is given in order to learn the kinds of lessons that having that experience will offer that person to learn. So what we have here are specific types of consent where we consent to the specific life circumstances that we enter that are known to us at our birth. It seems to me that that requires a kind of very specific type of consent. 
Now, whether or not with a third person, you know, as you say, the causes are just not certain enough. God's uh, foreknowledge is not certain, so that there are all kinds of contingencies. Here's where the quote from Lucas that I give in, in the second chapter, I think, comes into play. I'm going to just quote him because it's so eloquent. One plan may fail, but there are always others. As fast as we torpedo his best designs for us, he produces out of his agonized reappraisal a second best. Whatever the situation, there are some things he would have rather have us do than other things, and insofar as we do them, we are fulfilling a plan he has for us. Insofar as we do not, we shall be bringing about a situation, undesired if not always unforeseen, which will call for new remedies of its own, new remedies which will themselves call once again for our cooperation if they are carried out. God being infinite, there is not just one best, but an infinity of bests, so that the very loss of one makes possible the achievement of the other. I rarely use the term infinity or omni with respect to God, but God is infinitely resourceful. He's omni-resourceful. He is the most intelligent, knowledgeable person in the universe and the most resourceful and creative. And whatever we do to tube his plan, he has a way of responding to give us new opportunities to learn. None of us are ever so lost that we're beyond his grace and love. None of us are ever so far developed that we couldn't learn more, including God. And there is no plan that we have screwed up so badly that God can't come up with another of the infinity of best plans that he's come up with. And so the notion that God has to have this kind of foreknowledge or the causes have to be certain in order to give us the opportunity to learn the lessons that we agreed is simply a failure of imagination and of trust in God's resourcefulness, may I add. And then one last thing to finish this out, that whole subject is, like I said, a part of a bigger question of theodicy as it relates to prayer. And then just this last question here is, in the book you assert, well, you probably need to give some, I'll give some background on this, so well, I'll just read it and then we can discuss it. So the quote is, we may be even accountable to those who we could have assisted through prayer, but were too self-absorbed to notice or too proud to raise our voices to heaven. And so the context for this is basically that you're saying that we have such power in prayer and an obligation to pray for others to help fulfill God's plans that we may be accountable for the suffering of other people because we didn't pray for them. You can probably explain this, but on its surface, at least the way I'm understanding it, I have a, a pretty big problem with that just because it seems that you're positing that God will just let people suffer because he values the warm fuzzies or something that other people get from seeing their prayers sometimes answered above the pain and suffering of another person. Basically, God would withhold his blessing on someone just to wait around for someone else to pray so that he can bless that person who prayed. And again, I understand the whole consent thing that you just said, but I don't know if even that person consenting makes this maybe a worthy price to pay for the possibility of someone maybe learning something from it. And again, God doesn't know if they will learn. We don't know if we will learn. He doesn't know if they will learn the right thing. So it just seems a big price to pay for it, maybe. And I don't understand why God would wait. Let's say God wants to heal cancer from someone, but he's just waiting around for Johnny to pray, and that's when he's going to do it. And if Johnny never prays, then you'll die from cancer. And I know, again, this is, I'm putting it in a bad light. So if you could kind of bring me back and help me understand your point of view on that. Sure. It follows from the fact that we have power to change reality from the way that it otherwise would be. 
in cooperating in partnering prayer with God that if we don't pray for things and recognize the needs of people around us and pray for them, that we're accountable for not having added our impetus, our power, however small, to the good outcome of the world that we seek. When we pray for something, we're accountable for not interacting in a way that will bring about what we ask for. I mean, we're stupid. So you would agree to that extent we're accountable, we're, um, but you'd say, well, we could do that even without the prayer, but that's not the case. Maybe the prayer has opened our minds and given us an opportunity to be inspired, and so we're accountable for not having given our opened ourselves to be inspired to help others in a way that will benefit their lives, or that we can assist them with problems that they have. So inevitably, if we believe that prayer can make a difference in the world, that our petitions have some kind of effect on the world, then we can be accountable for not having the good effect on the world that we could have had. It's simply a matter of comparing what could be with what is in terms of our power to bring it about. Now, having said that, I don't have power to stop a person from having cancer unilaterally. God does. And if I pray for somebody to be healed of cancer, now, it may be that my additional prayer would have added to God's power to bring about that result. And here's a question I'll leave for the theodicy. It's an open question for now. Does God have power to cure cancer unilaterally? Can he just, oh, and it's gone in every single case? That was a strike of lightning, by the way, in case you're wondering what that was. Does God have power to bring about literally anything that he decides without our cooperation in prayer with respect to ourselves, A, with respect to others, B, with respect to the natural world, C? And that requires a more complete theodicy, and that's book four. All right, excellent. Yeah, we've gone on pretty long here. So as far as anything on prayer, is there anything else that you wanted to reiterate or bring up that we haven't? Yeah, pray. <laughs> just pray like you're a little kid and just ask and trust and see what happens. And even when it doesn't happen, keep praying because you never know when it's going to happen because God may have said not yet. Just be open to possibilities brought about through prayer. And then after you pray, open your eyes and be aware and look and see, and see if you can see God's hand in response to your prayer. Be open to the world to teach you. Be open to the possibility that every person you encounter has a lesson to teach you that you can learn, and that every person can be your teacher. Be open to the possibility that in every single situation, there's a message for you, that in everything that occurs in your life, there are reasons that give you an opportunity to learn, to progress, and to make the best of yourself. And in all things, to become more Christ-like and to have the mind of Christ and to grow to the stature of Christ. In all things, this would be a worthy goal regardless. But I believe in the power of prayer. I believe in the power to create interpersonal relationships between us and God and to solidify them and to choose into these relationships freely. I believe in the power of prayer on behalf of others. I've seen it. I believe in the power of prayer with respect to the natural world to influence what occurs. I believe in all of these things. And I believe I've seen actual instances of answers to prayers. Now, this is a highly personal matter. It becomes a matter of one's openness and having eyes to see what otherwise can't be seen. It's a matter of faith. And as I've said before, the only difference between the believer and the non-believer is the non-believer doesn't see God anywhere, and the believer sees God everywhere. See God everywhere. Be open to the possibility that God is active in your life and see how he's working with you and what opportunities he's giving you to grow and learn. In every event. Being open to these opportunities is for your benefit. doesn't matter whether you believe or not. 
acting on this in the way I've suggested is still for your benefit, and it will always be for your good. All right. Amen to that. All right. That'll sum us up. Have a good one, guys. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.